Well, good morning to you. Those of you that have a Bible, hope you do. You can turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'm not offended at all if you use your phone for that or uh, whatever you need to do to, to, uh, to, get, to get there uh, because I want you to follow along in this text today. I, I, I do love you people for a lot of reasons. Here's one. I, I, I listen to a lot of other pastors, preachers, podcasts, things like that. And they feel a lot of pressure on Easter, guys. Like to do something spectacular, to do something, uh, to do something different. But we really do celebrate the resurrection every week in here. And so what we're going to do is preach the word faithfully, like we always do. That's what we're going to do for our Easter morning together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start reading to you from verse 17. We'll pray, and then we'll get started. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, the Word of God says this. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to the man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to the man, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Well, Peter began to say to Jesus, Well, see, we left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. Dad, if you would pray over time in the Word together. Amen. This is going to be our last sermon in the Gospel of Mark series for a little while. Dad's going to be preaching next week. Doug will be back up with our Revelation series soon. So we'll take a break from it. Let me catch you up on where we are in the Gospel of Mark. We'll get back into this text. Last week we were together and Jesus was in a house teaching his disciples some hard things to teach. For the last two weeks we learned some hard lessons. Things like if you want to be great, the, the way to get there is to serve people. 
We saw last week, be careful for your sin, how it affects others. Be careful of your sin. Be watchful for how it even affects you. And now we're out of that house and we're walking towards Jerusalem. Really, since the transfiguration, that's all that we've been doing. The reader doesn't know it till we get there. But this entire time, Jesus has been moving inexorably toward the cross, moving towards the weekend that we are celebrating, remembering this weekend on our church calendars. And as Jesus walks to Jerusalem, as he's walking towards his ultimate trial, his arrest, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, people keep encountering him. And there's conversations he has on his way to Jerusalem. The first one is actually with the Pharisees. It, it is as if the Pharisees in Jerusalem hear, this Jesus guy is coming. He's got a movement. Like, let's test this guy. And so they send out some Pharisees to ask Jesus about divorce. And he has a conflict with them. And then there's a conversation he has next with the disciples about how it's children, people with absolutely nothing to offer. That the faith of a child is, is what it's like to come into the kingdom of God. Those are the first two interactions. And I'm not skipping those. We're going to come back. We're going to do those this summer. But that's why we're, we're skipping to a more uh, Easter-friendly, Resurrection Sunday type of text. We're going to come to the third interaction Jesus has on his way to the cross. And that's with this man that other gospels call the rich young ruler. He has the trifecta of everything that we want, right? He's rich, he has possessions, he's young, he has youth, and he has, he's a ruler. He has power. And so he, we have Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and then his disciples about children. And now let's see what we can learn from his interaction with a very powerful person. Back to verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let's stop there for just a second. We are ten chapters in. This is the first time anyone's asked the question. We're a long way into the book of Mark, and no one's asked this fundamental question for all of us, a question that we might all ask. What happens after this? What happens when this age is over, and what's going to be, what's going to be my, my afterlife? And he wants to know, what must I do? What's my checklist before moving on from this age into the next age? What must I do to get eternal life? Now, when he asks about eternal life, it's a different way than we think about it. We tend to say things like, go to heaven when you die. Their paradigm, the way they thought about it, the Jews at the time, was that there was this age, the one we're all in, and there was the age to come, that when the Messiah would come and have a recreation, a, a Genesis type of recreation where all things are made right, all things are made new. And so this guy's off asking, hey, you might actually be that Messiah. You might be bringing the new age, the age to come. What must I do to come with you as the righteous into that age with you? Now, when we meet this man at first, we don't know anything about him. All we know is this. This is urgent to him. He is troubled by this question. We know that because Jewish men don't run. run running in the scriptures is kept for children. It's kept for, for women. It's not a thing men do. It's undignified to run up. But this is urgent question. This man wants to know, what must I do to go with you into the next age, into the kingdom? So let's see what Jesus says to him. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus gives him first a kind of a cryptic answer. He asks him back a question about the fundamental nature of goodness. Why do you call me good? But then he gives a really normal Jewish answer. Follow the law. Moses gave you the law. 
It's actually 613 total laws. Follow the Torah, and you will inherit eternal life. Because even in the Torah of the 613 laws, there's sacrificial laws. So you'll be sacrificing for for sin, for for atonement. He gives this very standard response to this guy. You know the rules. Keep the law of Moses. And so verse 19, he says back to him, Teacher, Jesus, all these things I've kept from my youth. Now, first, what a statement from this man. Imagine it for a moment. This guy actually thinks, like, I, I have been perfectly keeping the law my whole life. But at the same time, it does because he ran up to Jesus, because he was desperate when he came, he's kneeling down. He knows he's missing something. There's an ache in his soul that is saying, following the rules can't be enough. There's got to be something else. But at the same time, Jesus answers him and says, oh no, just uh, follow the law. It's at least Jesus' first answer. Follow, follow the law of Moses. Follow the Torah. And you've got to imagine this, this guy's relief. I have, been, I have been doing this really well. I've been following all the rules. There's even some pride maybe in that. I've kept all the rules since my youth. Those of you that know me well, you might know. I have always empathized and sympathized with the rich young ruler. There is a temptation to think you can earn approval. You can earn the approval of others by your behavior. You can even earn the approval of God by saying, hey, look at all the stuff I don't do. Look at all the self-denial that I take a part of. Do you see how these other people are behaving? Can I earn your approval by how I behave? It's, it's almost like a belief in some kind of cosmic karma. Tim Keller says it's the idea of putting God in your debt, making, controlling God by your behavior, saying, if I do the right things, you've got to do things for me too, right? And this guy has this idea. I, originally, I got this ache. I feel like something's missing. And when Jesus gives him the first answer, just follow the law. And now he's so relieved. But, verse 21. One quick, one quick note before you read verse 21. It is great here. Jesus doesn't argue with him. He doesn't argue Come on, man. You haven't actually kept all the laws. Instead, Jesus says this in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, the rich young ruler, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven in the age to come. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. We'll stop there for a sec. That word looks there when Jesus is looking at him. It's the word for scrutinize. He's looking past the man's eyes, looking past the man's body, looking into his heart. And he sees this man's heart and he loves him. What a Jesus we have. Despite this man's my type of pride, despite the foolishness of thinking I have lived and measured up, Jesus looks at him and I, I love this guy. This is really... Really important point. In the Gospel of Mark, not the other Gospels, this is said of exactly one person. It is said Jesus loves one person in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's this guy. In the other Gospels, you learn that he loved Lazarus. He he loved some other people. And in one way, he loves loves the world. He loves the redeemed. But in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only person that's said of. So that's supposed to tell us something important. Whatever Jesus does next, it comes from a heart of love. He looked at him. He loved him. And then the, the next thing he does out of a heart of love is say, Go sell everything. And it wrecked the man emotionally. That word, disheartened by the saying, it means to grieve. He went away 
grieved by Jesus' act of love of telling him to go sell because it was actually the kindest and most loving thing Jesus could do. He revealed the man's heart to him. Take a lesson from that. Sometimes Jesus will call for action that will cause you to grieve. And he has, caused, he has called for that action because he loves you. We said last week, sometimes cutting sin out of our lives will feel like gouging an eye out or cutting a hand off. There are some things Jesus calls us to. They hurt. And there's so much good on the other end. He actually says to him, sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. You can actually get me, have me instead. But this man has what he loves. He loves his stuff. He loves what he, what he owns. He loves his money and all the comfort and power and control and prestige that it gives him. And so the most loving thing Jesus could say is look at his heart and say, hmm, you don't have possessions. Possessions have you. I'm going to reveal that to you. It was an act of love even though it really wrecked him. And then Jesus gives him a very double-meaning type of direction. He says, you are lacking one thing. You're doing all the right stuff. You're following the rules. You have the blessings of God in, in material things, but you don't have one thing. And you can read that as, well, the one thing he doesn't have is that he wouldn't sell all of this stuff. That's the one thing he was missing. If he would just sell all of this stuff and give it away, that's what he's missing. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you're, you do lack one thing. You lack me. You want, eternal, you want eternal life. You want your stuff. I'm telling you, here's the best thing. I, I am the best thing. And you're, you're holding on to things instead of getting me. What this man wanted, what the rich young ruler wanted, is he wanted a transaction. How can I transact business with you, God? I, what, what, what must I do? What are the actions that I need to complete for me to get what I want from you? And Jesus breaks down the entire structure and says, no, we're not making a trade. I want you. And I want you to want me. I want, I want you to follow along with me. It's the same command or same question he would give for us today. Do you want a transaction with Jesus? Do you want to make a deal with him? Or do you want him? And Jesus' question to this man or this command was to reveal his heart to him that you don't really want me. So Jesus gives this man the, the command, you missed the one thing, go sell all you have. And he, it, it grieves him. Because this man had a lot of possessions, or as I said a moment ago, the possessions owned him, it owned his heart. This type of thinking goes with another teaching from Jesus where he says in Matthew, no man can serve two masters. That's what Jesus' command here to this man revealed. Like, yeah, you behave yourself, you do all the right stuff, but you really love your stuff the most. You love your material possessions the most. Now, imagine the feelings for this rich young ruler. They are not hard to imagine if you'll take a second and sit in it. You get the command, sell everything. I don't know what your valued possessions are, but you think about it. Think about selling everything and not keeping the proceeds, not selling everything and like staying liquid, like you keep your, your assets. Sell everything, give it away, follow me, come after me. Yeah, that's, that's a devastating thing to hear if you love your stuff. And you know, I, th I even think about, I'm, I'm a risk-averse person, uh, and I that, that is, I think, common amongst a lot of folks who have, who have material things. They, they got there often by being risk-averse and being, uh, being, being wise with their resources. I, 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 can, I can think about this guy saying, following Jesus, this is, this is getting kind of trendy. It's a growing group. It's a growing movement. They're headed towards Jerusalem. He might be the Messiah. It looks like it could be a good investment. But look at the risk. All that I would lose for the 
chance that this guy might bring us to the kingdom and he just can't let go of his stuff. And oddly, we actually never find out what happens to this guy. He just fades off. He goes away grieving, having chosen his stuff over following Jesus. But then Jesus finds this to be a good teaching opportunity. So he decides to teach his disciples. So we'll go back to verse 23. As the man's walking away, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. For the disciples here, this is a mind-blowing lesson. Consider the disciples and how they would think about this rich young ruler. This is the kind of guy they want on their side. They're going to conquer Rome out of Jerusalem. They could use some rich rulers. They could use the resources. They would think this guy's a real credit to our movement. And instead, what Jesus says, oh, it's going to be even harder for him to make it to the kingdom, to, to make it to the kingdom of God. You also have to consider their perspective here, how they grew up. They lived in a very stratified society, not totally unlike what you might see in the Indian caste system today. To, to their culture, riches meant having wealth. It meant God's blessing you. If you have notoriety and power, it means God is blessing you. And if you have poverty and obscurity, it specifically means God is rejecting you. He's punishing you for something. That's how they grew up. And now they're hearing Jesus turn that upside down. You know, we, we don't uh, escape that today. On your TVs, on your radios, there's something similar taught. We know it's called the prosperity gospel. That there's this idea that stuff, material wealth, is the blessing of God. And if you don't have stuff, it means God is... That God is punishing, punishing you in some way. And I just want to make sure we take the time when, when it's in the text to say that's false. Right now, there's a billion of your brothers and sisters, one billion of your brothers and sisters who say they are following Christ all around the world right now in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. They are living in what we would call total poverty. And they are living in poverty and they're living faithfully. Faithfully following Jesus in their poverty, they are blessed from God, not rejected because of their poverty. It was a bad teaching then when the disciples thought it. It's a bad teaching now to equate wealth with blessing or poverty with rejection or curse. Jesus turns that upside down here saying it's actually more difficult for those with wealth to make it to the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished by it. So he continues by calling them children to teach that lesson a little further, and then says something I don't want you to miss. He says that, that one sentence after his children is, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? Not just for the wealthy. He says, period, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. On both ends, he emphasizes how hard it is for the wealthy. But in the middle, he just says it's hard to enter the kingdom on its own. So sit in that for a second. In another part, of, in another gospel, Jesus says, Straight is the path and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. To enter the kingdom, to reject all the temptations of this world, and to follow after Christ, he says, Oh, it's difficult. Yeah. Being wealthy just adds another dimension of difficulty to entering the kingdom and following Christ. So, first, I want you to sit in that, feel that tension that it is hard to follow Christ. He's not, he's not sugarcoating that. Second, 
this uh, is actually a quite sarcastic joke. There's a few sarcastic jokes that Jesus tells throughout the Gospels that I, that I enjoy. This, uh, just get, get the picture here. The camel is probably the largest animal they know of. There's probably not elephants around that part of the, the world. So Jesus takes the largest animal they can think of, and then the smallest thing he can think of, the, the thread where you put the, excuse me, the eye of a needle, and says, that's how hard it is to get through a, a wealthy person to get into heaven. And so while this is this hyperbolic, sarcastic joke, it should show us Jesus is saying something very meaningful here. What is he saying by the joke? He's saying it's not hard. He's saying it's impossible. For anyone to enter the kingdom of God by their own striving, it's not something they can do at all. It's not just hard. It's impossible. And so... That leaves us some questions that we're about to answer, but I want to answer this question from the text. Why is it particularly hard for the rich? Why would those with resources have a, a, an added difficulty, an added dimension of difficulty to entering the kingdom? I think it's probably two things that we can surmise from Scripture. One is the security they feel. Having, having wealth to never have to really stress, you, you can feel self-satisfied. There's almost a blessing in some poverty in that you know every day, Lord, I need my daily bread just for today. The wealthy might have an added dimension of difficulty because of their status. They never have to stare their own obscurity in their face because they're not obscure. Where obscurity and poverty can lead you to, Lord, to, to saying, Lord, I know I need you. It's very obvious how much I need you. And it might be something for us to consider that are, are we in that category? You don't think about yourself as rich. I know you don't. But do you ever recognize how easy our lives are? That we don't have daily bread in our fridges. We have weekly food. We can plan ahead for months. Not really have to worry. We never have to stare our poverty in the face where we live. We never have to stare our obscurity in the face. And maybe that makes us self-reliant and not leaning on the Lord. So don't just hear today, oh, it's super hard for the rich. You know the rich. Those, those, those other people we could name. Those are the people it's really hard for. It might be you. You might be in that category. So the disciples are hearing a, sur a surprising teaching from Jesus that it's harder for rich people to enter the kingdom than the, the middle class. And let's see their reaction in 26, verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It is significant here that he continues to tell us they were amazed or astonished. It's important for us to see how incredulous they are because their thinking is, if not the rich, then who? They're probably now stressing out about the question that the rich man asked. The rich man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now that they're getting this paradigm of knowing that it's even harder for the rich, they might be asking Jesus, what do I got to do? Like, if they're not getting in, what do I got to do to do it? And Jesus' answer is not hard to interpret. His answer is, you cannot do it. It is impossible for you, of your own efforts, to enter the kingdom of God. God will have to intervene for you to enter the kingdom of God. We celebrate today that he did that. He sang it earlier came down to wear our sin, bear our shame. It will take God's intervention for you to get into the kingdom. We covered in a previous sermon what he means by all things. So the all things is ultimate things. And if God can do all things, he can do the ultimate thing, which is 
enter you into the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus. Now, this might be a good moment of reflection for the disciples. They just learned a brand new thing that apparently the wealth and riches is something maybe not to be so desired, that it could actually be a problem, and that you can't get in the kingdom of God unless the Lord compels and, and does his work on your heart. You will not get in without his work, because with God, those things are possible. It'd be a good moment to stop and think. And that is never what Peter does. As we've learned throughout this book, Peter always got something to say. When there's a really good moment to stop and think, he has a response. So verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, See, well, we have left everything and followed you. Peter does see an opportunity here. Well, Jesus, you see what that rich guy just did? We didn't do that. You came to me when I was in my boat and I had my nets out, and you said, come follow me. I dropped the nets. We went, we went, man. We followed you. See what we did? He didn't do it. You told us to leave our jobs, our homes, our families, and we did. So we're in, right? We did it. I've learned as I study more about the disciples. I always thought about them growing up that they were all impoverished and stupid. I thought that was what the disciples were. But I've learned Jewish young boys were decently well-educated. They knew a good bit of the scripture. And in particular, uh, some of them had some resources. Matthew was a tax collector. He may have been a turncoat for the Romans, but he had some resources as a tax collector. When you think about Peter, James, John, and Andrew, it seems to be they had a, a fishing business together. So they were at least middle class. Guys, they owned a boat. If you own a boat in 2021, you're doing okay. They owned a boat in the ancient world. They were probably not peasants. And so they did leave something behind to follow Jesus. And Peter wants to emphasize that. You see what I did? I did leave. I did leave my boat. I did leave my fishing business to come and follow you. And even for the ones that didn't have resources, they did leave their families. They, that's not a thing people used to do. I know it's super normal now for everyone just to leave. But you used to live within a couple miles of your family your entire life, and they're off traveling with Jesus, this itinerant teacher, there was some real cost to following Jesus. And Peter wants to feel self-assured. I'm not like the rich guy. Like I, I, I did something different. I, I, I know I can earn the kingdom of God. He's not actually being any different than the rich guy. The rich guy says, I have followed all the laws, all 613 of those. I'm doing great. And Peter says, oh, well, he didn't do that one thing, and I did that one thing, so I'm good, right? Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, they'll receive eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And I, I grew up in church, and I will admit, I always was confused by these verses until I started studying for the sermon. This has been abused like crazy by the prosperity types. They, they will tell you, sow your seed into this ministry, and here's what Jesus says. If you will lose some of your resources for uh, the gospel, you'll get it back a hundredfold in this time. In this life, you'll get back what you give. That's what it sounds like when you first read it. But this is not a guarantee of physical abundance. Again, as Tim Keller says, you don't put God in your debt by the things that you do or give. This is actually a beautiful statement about the family of believers. It's a statement about the church. The body of Christ that he's about to establish. He is saying, 
Guys, if you lose your home in some way for following Christ, you gain all the homes of this church. I got a spare room. If you lose your job, you leave your job to stay away from a temptation that's at your job, you gain all of us to help you out. He's saying whatever it costs you to follow Christ through each other, oh, you'll get it back a hundredfold because you have each other. Consider the list. If you lose your house, well, we, we, we can help out. So it says you lose your siblings, lose brothers or sisters. I know in this room, guys, there's a lot of you. You are much closer to someone in here than you are your actual blood relative siblings because you found brothers here. You found sisters here. I know I did. I'm, I'm fortunate. My best friends in the world happen to be my siblings. But even if I would have lost one because of some biblical reason, man, I got... I got plenty of brothers here. I got a big old family in this place. I got plenty of sisters here. What if I were estranged from my parents because of the gospel? You think I could find another father here? Another father figure? Some of you are very physically, very literally, raising kids who are not your own. In the church, if you lose these things, oh, you gain them a hundredfold. Because we have each other. That's how you get those in these times. And then those faithful followers, they get eternal life too in the, in the age to come. So G- Jesus is saying there to Peter, yeah, you left everything. And what you left, you gained me and you gained all the church. You gained all of us working together. He also doesn't sugarcoat anything here. Earlier he said, entering the kingdom of God is hard. And then don't miss what he did say. He said, You'll get all these things a hundredfold because you get each other, but you'll get persecutions too. And we get those together as well. We get to be for one another in those persecutions. I think that's a big part of that Revelation series that Doug is going through. He says hard things, like entering the kingdom is hard. There will be persecutions. Sell all you have and choose me over everything else. These are all very hard things that Jesus teaches, and we need to wrestle with them now. So... I have two points about the rich man. We're finished with that text for today, but two points about this rich man, and then I have one final point for uh, the sermon today. So here we go. We're going to look at the moral superiority of the rich man and the material security, the moral superiority and the material security. Think about this rich man again, and how much, first, and the first one is moral superiority, how much he thinks he had earned his spot. I've often said that some people really need to be rescued from their wretchedness. They're, the sin is deep. It's obvious. There's uh, the joke from one, com- one Christian comedian is, you know, I used to smoke, drink, I was addicted. Then I turned seven years old, met Jesus, and turned my life around. That was, there's those very dramatic stories. Some people have to be rescued from their wretchedness. And some have to be rescued from their righteousness. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's me. That's this ruler. And maybe that's you where you're really sure you've done all the right things. You've looked around the world. You're a pretty good person. That's how you see it. And you've got to be rescued from your own self-righteousness. Are you thinking, like I did for a long time in my life, are you thinking you've earned your place? Paul tells us that even your righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. I've used the illustration before. It's, I think it's something like children's art. Like you've been given some art from your kids when they were very young. And let's be honest, they're not great artists when they're young sometimes, right? But when you look at it, 
It's beautiful. It's the best. It's the best thing. But is it actually good? No. And the kid is super like kids. You're great artist. I'm just. I mean, don't don't hear uh, don't hear me criticizing your, uh, your your coloring. But you look at it. You know it's not great. But they think it's awesome. That is my righteousness that I'm giving to God. Look at this mess. That I, this, this, this painting, it's so good. I haven't done all those other things those people do. And I, ha- I have done these things. I'm in church every Sunday. I never miss. Here's all the stuff I do. It's a very unimpressive little painting. It's a very unimpressive. I didn't even stay in the lines that well, but I sure think I did. And that's, that might be a lot of you. That is this man, his moral superiority. I've done the right things. Haven't I earned your blessing? Haven't I earned my way into the kingdom? And we saw his transactional nature. That's what he wanted. He wanted to make a deal with Jesus. What must I do to get what I want? And for a lot of us, including me, transactional relationships are just way more comfortable. But Jesus does not leave that as an option for you today. He didn't leave it as an option for me. I can't just do what he told me to do and go on about my way. He looks at him and he says, you do lack one thing. You don't have me and I want you. So if you're like me today and feeling that moral superiority sometime, let me say, don't count on your lists of things to do. Whatever you're doing or not doing, it's not enough. Turn to Christ. Get Him. He is the greatest blessing. Turn to Christ instead of your works. That's call number one, and the moral superiority of the rich man. Number two is the material security of the rich man. Think back to this man's decision. His decision was lose my stuff and get Christ... Or I can keep my stuff and lose Christ. And he could not let go of his stuff. That decision, in different ways we're going to pull out here, that decision is before all of us today. Will you lose what you find most precious to get Christ? Or will you hold on to it tightly and lose out on Christ? But let's get specific here. We can, I, I can allegorize it and turn it to a lot of things. Or we can talk about what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about money. Are you certain, this is my question for you today, are you certain you love Jesus more than your money? More than your stuff? Money is a hard topic, in part because churches have done a really bad job of teaching about it over the years, and uh, they would follow the sermon with an offering. We're not doing that. He talks about it a lot. It's actually one of the most common teachings of Jesus. It's about wealth and riches and money. He seems to know something about our hearts and how our wealth and our money almost, almost secretly just kind of gets in there how much we want our stuff, how much we want our comforts, how we want our experiences. Especially in this world where we live in the West, money is so deceptive in a lot of ways. Here's one way it's deceptive. We don't feel materialistic because the the entire milieu of our culture is telling you you need stuff. That's what advertising is, by the way. Advertising is trying to get you to believe you don't have enough. You haven't been to this place. You haven't seen this movie. You don't have the streaming service. Your internet's not fast enough. Your car's not good enough. Here's, oh, and then not just the, the billboards and the streaming services that the ads we're seeing, but also the curated look that we get of everyone's life on, on social media. You get to see highlight reels of everyone else while you actually get to see only your bloopers. And you are looking at other people's lives going, they have all this stuff. It, it, it becomes so deceptive where you look at what you have and you don't think it's a lot because you see all this other stuff. We think we're not rich. But almost every one of us has more than we need. We would be irresponsible today not to hear from Jesus about this question and ask ourselves, do my possessions have me or do I have my possessions? Am I, am, do I hold them openly to say, Lord, whatever you want for this, it's, it's yours. You gave it to me. 
You either gave me the skills, abilities, and intellect to earn the money to get my stuff, or you actually just blessed me with it. Are we open-handed with our stuff? It's worth asking yourself that question. So money's deceptive in this culture because we think we don't have a lot, and we do. But it's, it's also deceptive because we think a certain amount will make us happy. I think a lot of you in your 30s and 40s in this room, I know this is true of me sometimes. When I was 20, I thought, if I could make that much money, I bet I'll be happy. And then I made that much money. And I went, I don't, I'm not even all that happy. I, went with this, I, th- I think I'm going to need more. I think some of you at 20 thought, if I could just get this much, if I get a house, if I get these cars, if I could make this much, I bet I'll be happy. And you all got there, and you went up, I don't think it's nearly enough. I'm going to need some more. Money tells us, if you just get a little bit more, you'll be happy. There are some great academic studies from universities that show it's not true. Uh, Since 1975, the average American is twice as wealthy. The average middle-class person has twice as much, and our level of happiness hasn't gone up at all. We are just as happy or unhappy as we were 40 years ago, even though we've gotten opulently more wealthy. There's this lie that I could give you from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes tells you there's a lot of life, a lot of experiences, including money. It will say, just get a little bit more. If you'll just give me, and money is saying, give me more of your time. Give me more of your effort. If you'll give me, give money more of your, your time, you'll finally get enough. And it never does. I've illustrated that to you before by giving you uh, some scriptures from Ecclesiastes, but I, in study, I, I ran across this. It's so funny to me, and I want to share it to you, with you, about how money is deceptive by telling you you'll finally have enough if you keep working hard enough. It's from Mark Twain, the 19th century brilliant writer. He's so sarcastic and witty, and he heard the head of the Vanderbilt family. So you've all heard of the Vanderbilts, some of the wealthiest people in the history of the country, built most of the, rail, most of the railways, and there was a much ballyhooed story uh, from the, the head of the Vanderbilt family after he got to $70 million, which in our dollars, is, it's insane. And he said he, he needed $500 million. His goal is, I need to get to $500 million. I have 70. I need to get to 500 And this is an open letter Mark Twain wrote to the Vanderbilt guy. He said this, poor, poor Vanderbilt. How I pity you. You're an old man. You ought to have some rest, and yet... You just struggle and deny yourself and rob yourself of sleep and peace of mind because you need money so badly. I always feel for a man who is so poverty-ridden as you. Don't misunderstand me. I, I know you own 70 million, but then you know and I know that it isn't what a man has that constitutes wealth. No, it is to be satisfied, satisfied with what one has. That is wealth. As long as one sorely needs a certain additional amount of money, that man is not rich. Seventy times seventy millions can't make him rich as long as his poor, poverty-ridden heart is breaking for more. You've got your seventy million, but you say you need five hundred million, and you are really suffering for it. Your poverty is something appalling. I tell you truly that I do not believe I could live twenty-four hours with the awful weight of four hundred and thirty million of abject poverty crushing down on me. I should die under it. My soul is so wrought upon by your hapless pauperism that if you came by me now, I would freely freely put 10 cents in your tin cup and say, God pity you, you poor unfortunate. There is so much truth in that. We just keep thinking, if we get get a little bit more, we'll be fine. G.K. Chesterton said of, of this topic, there are two ways to have enough. One is to accumulate more. The other is to just want less. And it's worth us considering today. 
What's our relationship to our possessions? What's our relationship to our money? And it's just, this is deceptive. Money is deceptive in a, in a third way here. And Jesus teaches elsewhere in the Gospels that you cannot serve God and money. I quoted that earlier. And it might be, it might be because of this. I think it goes to the, to the rich man here. Sometimes it's not the money itself. And it's not necessarily the experiences or material things we buy that have our hearts. Sometimes you might think, it's not the money. Money doesn't have me. But it's, it's the fact that that money gives us power over somebody. It might be that that money gives us control of someone's life. It's that that money gives us a certain level of comfort so we don't have to stress. It's that we can use that money to purchase things to get approval from other people. It's worth searching one, one layer deeper. Maybe it's not money that you love so much. Maybe it's the power, control, comfort, approval from others that you, you're, you're using your money to get. So the question for you today, do you have a loose grip on your money and a tight grip to Christ? Or does your money have a tight grip on you as you hold loosely to the kingdom? The call today from Jesus is this. Sell what's keeping you from me. For some of you, maybe it's not money, but something is keeping you from Jesus. And his call there is you do lack this one thing. You might be behaving and doing a lot of the right stuff. Hey, you're here on Sunday morning and Easter. You're doing the right things. Whatever's keeping you from me, that person, that job, that ambition, that idol, whatever it is, sell it, get rid of it, and come follow me. So we have the moral superiority of the rich man asking yourself today, do I think I'm earning or earning my salvation or am I coming to Jesus knowing I need him? Number two, the material security. Are you loving your wealth more than you're loving Jesus? And that call is just sell whatever is keeping you from Jesus. And this is the final thing I want to give you today. The band will come up and we'll sing. We're closing down this part of the Mark, Gospel of Mark series. We'll pick it back up in, in the summer. I want you to know that the next three verses after what we just read, for the third time in the book, Jesus will predict his own death. He will say to his people, we're going to Jerusalem and they're going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, kill me. After three days, I'll rise. That's what we're celebrating today. And when he says this, what the scriptures say of his followers is some were amazed and some were afraid. That, that to me is, the, uh, that, that is the, the reactions that we have to Jesus in these teachings. These last three weeks, to be great, serve people. To, to, to be careful of our own sin. Now, be careful that you're not just being morally superior and secure in your money. I'm either amazed by him or I'm afraid of him. Because these are hard questions. And that's the, what I want to bring back to you today is the core question of the book of Mark. The entire book is asking you, it's demanding of you an answer to this question. Who is this Jesus? And if what we say is true of him, what we sang today, what we're about to sing again, if he really is God in the flesh who actually walked around on a physical earth 2,000 years ago, who actually physically died, who actually physically resurrected, what are you going to do with it? Stare Jesus truly in the face today for even these hard lessons and ask, what am I going to do with this Jesus? Are you amazed by him? Are you afraid of him a little bit? I think those are both, both really legitimate Reactions. There's a last story here. There's a part in one of the Chronicles of Narnia where 
one of the characters is telling another character about Aslan. Aslan is the, is the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan is a big, fearsome lion. You would be scared of a big, fearsome lion, right? And so one character asks the other, is he safe? And the response back is, he's not safe. But he's good. It may not feel safe to cut off your sin, like we talked about last week. It may not feel safe to let go of some of your material possessions. It may not feel safe to break off of a job or a friendship or something that's keeping you from Christ. It may not feel safe. But I am asking you today, stare at Jesus and know, He is good. And follow after Him, our risen Savior today.